The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Finstaden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, so much has been going on this past week, I don't even know where to start. Normally on the show, we try and pick one topic and dive into it and really explore that in detail. Today, we can't do that just because of all that's going on. Let's start with the most recent events and work our way back. Everybody obviously saw what happened and what unfolded in Kabul, Afghanistan this week, uh, a dramatic events, and this was a fiasco by any, any measure. I mean, it's just, uh, there's no words to describe what happened, the incompetence, the lack of planning, Today, what I was writing about on the site was the impact that it's going to have in Africa. And this is very, very interesting for us to explore. And we're going to talk about that today. Also, on a very exciting, very positive note, uh, Zambia has a new president. Haika Inde Hishilema is, was declared president-elect on Monday after getting more than 2.8 million votes, a million more than incumbent President Edgar Lungu, which makes it one of the biggest electoral wins in Zambian history. His margin of victory was so large, he didn't have to do the runoff. And what was amazing, Kobus, was these pictures afterwards. And as an American, I sat there with envy watching Lungu and Ishilema together, kind of doing a peaceful transfer of power. If you will, they haven't transferred power yet, but just a reconciliation. That, of course, is something that did not happen in the last U.S. election. So I think that was very, very interesting. But democracy got a win in Zambia this week. Now, what we've been talking about is the messages that Hishilema is sending to investors. And this is what we're going to talk about today as well on the principle of equal treatment. And he is telegraphing to uh, bondholders in London and New York and also creditors in Beijing that he is going to follow through with the principle of equal treatment. And that was the concern that the IMF and also that creditors and bondholders had uh, overseas was that any debt relief deal that they agreed to would simply backdoor a whole bunch of cash to China. And that's what everybody wanted to avoid. It looks like the new president is going to try and at least try, as he said, to resolve that. Finally, uh, working back to last week and the week before, so it's not entirely this week, Kenya has been forced to start repaying its standard gauge railway loans. Lots of events going on in the Kenyan debt situation. Two milestone events. Uh, the China Exim Bank refused Kenya's request to extend a debt repayment moratorium that began back in January and now has begun repayments on the Mombasa to Nairobi line. This is the most expensive and the oldest of the standard gauge railway lines. China playing very, very tough with the Kenyans on making sure that they start to repay now. Very difficult time for Kenya to repay given the fact that inflation is going up. There have been severe trade disruptions that have limited imports into the port of Mombasa. Lots of economic headwinds as a result, in part, 
of the COVID-19 pandemic that, of course, is wreaking havoc in Kenya as well, just as it is everywhere else. And then Afristar, which is the subsidiary of the China Road and Bridge Corporation, well, they reached a deal last year, I think it was, to hand over operations to the Kenya Railways Corporation five years ahead of schedule. The plan here was to find a way for Kenya Railways to reduce its its annual expenditures to Afristar. It's, it was paying about $120 million a year, if I recall, to be able to do those. Uh, the operation was to run big parts of the railway. Well, Afristar now came out and said, uh-uh, you guys missed a payment last year of $380 million. We're not going to hand over those operations until those debts are settled. So Cobus, again, really hardball coming from the Chinese in Kenya and wondering if this is going to be uh, an indication of what's to come in other African countries. And all of this is happening just weeks before the triennial China-Africa Leader Summit that will convene in Dakar, Senegal next month. Yeah, you know, the, the FOCAC Summit, which is, you know, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit, that, that's the one that you mentioned, is, I think, going to be a real litmus test about where we are, particularly in relation to Chinese funding and Chinese financing of, of projects in Africa. We're seeing that there's a... Uh, the, it's not only that the Chinese are playing hardball in, in terms of, of, of extracting, you know, kind of repayments and so on for already existing loans. They're also a lot more wary of, of setting up new loans which is the, which then raises a lot of questions about what's going to happen with existing contracts. We, we're seeing the contracts that where, where Chinese finances had, had been committed to, African governments are now finding, finding it difficult in some cases, like for example around a Nigerian pipeline, to actually get the money from the fin- from the finances, so we we're seeing I think a real kind of shift in the funding landscape, and with that then it raises a lot of questions about uh, other po- potential finances and 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 development partners, including traditional Western Western development partners, and whether they would be willing to to step into some of that gap. Okay, well, with so much going on, we wanted to get somebody who could give us the big picture, the view from Washington, but also from the state houses in Africa and a perspective on infrastructure in particular. So for that, we called up our old friend Jude Moore, who's a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington. He's also the former public works minister of Liberia and the host of an excellent new 12-part podcast series, Lagos to Mombasa. A very good morning, Jude. And thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the new podcast. Thank you, uh, Eric, and uh, thank you, Kobus, and and, uh, uh, a very good day to you, both of you, and uh, thanks for for having me on the show. Well, again, we're going to get to the podcast because we want to find out more about Lagos to Mombasa because there's there's a lot in between. Uh, Let's first start with uh, Hishilema and the good news. Give us your reaction to what unfolded, and then we're going to get into some of the debt issues, but what's your take on, on, on the elections in Zambia? Just, you know, I mean, have a lot of uh, very close Zambian uh, friends and colleagues, and it was a, a good day for the Zambian people. It was a good day for the, the rise of, of democracy across the continent at the consolidation of democratic institutions, uh, including, you know, um, transfer of power across the continent. Really, really good day. But it was also, I think, for the Zambian people, sort of a repudiation of some of the things that we saw toward the end of the of Lungu's term. He'd become slightly more autocratic. 
I mean, you have to remember, in spite of the scenes that we saw yesterday and the pictures of him and, and HH, is that uh, it was it six years ago that this guy was arrested, supposedly because his, his, his um, uh, motorcade didn't get off the road, something that should have been a small infraction. They called it terrorism. Then he was pepper sprayed in his uh, privates. I mean, so the, the government he's replacing had become really autocratic. And I think the Zambian people did what the, the, the way democracies are meant to perform. As Eric pointed out, you know, he, he highlighted the, the kind of equity between different creditors. Um, what did you make of, 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 that, of that statement? I actually saw the piece you, you sent out yesterday in terms of, uh, at least the China Africa podcast, in terms of five things. Was it five or four? It was five, yeah. Let me, let me, just, let me quickly uh, just summarize this for everybody. So I suggested in my column yesterday that uh, HH should buy some time. So he should uh, negotiate a, a, ve- a long-term debt deferral deal with the Chinese who own about 25% of Zambia's $12 billion of debt. He should end the secrecy he should work with the Speaker of the National Assembly, Patrick Matabini, to pass laws that will disclose and make public all of Zambia's loan contracts, not from not just from the Chinese, but also from everybody. Better debt management. He should take some inspiration from the Nigerian Debt Management Office and publish very easy to understand charts that show how much they've borrowed, where the money's going, and how it's being used. Convene a Zambian debt conference where all of the creditors sit together in a room. He really follows through on this equal treatment clause. And then he should really do a better job at using the current windfall of high copper prices to really bolster the balance sheet and invest in human development and and pay down some of that debt. So those are the five things that I put forward as my recommendations for the new president. Uh, Jude, go ahead. I thought those were all excellent uh, recommendations. I, on, on, on the one with buying time, I think he should play some hardball with the Chinese. You will remember that Zambia's default and, and the refusal of this club of Zambian bondholders to grant the Zambian government deferral was basically because they were not sure of what the deal was with the Chinese. Right, and the Zambian, I think, is the finance minister, complained that he was caught between these two things. On the one hand, you know, he, in the agreement, the relationship he had with the, the negotiations they had with the Chinese, they were forbidden to declare or to expose the terms of that engagement. And so when they actually negotiated with the bondholders, they wanted the bondholders to sign an NDA, which they refused to do, because the whole point of having this conversation was to know what was happening with, with China. And because China refused to budge, the bondholders themselves refused to. So I think China pushed the, the, their Zambian partners. And it is not clear that all of that debt followed Zambian rules in terms of the negotiation and acquisition of those debt. So here we have a new president who has no relationship with the Chinese, who has, you know, tried, like this is his sixth time trying to be president. He comes in with no baggage and he can say, listen, you know, because of how much debt we actually have, we're going to see how much of this debt is legitimate. Well, that question is going to shake everybody, right? And so we're going to treat all, all partners the same. And I think, you know, negotiating with the Chinese to say, you know, to buy time, I think they should definitely do that. But I think they should also play hardball with the Chinese. And I think it is important for the Zambians going forward that they treat all of the creditors equally and that the kind of special treatment that China has sort of negotiated for itself, 
Because without resolving that question, it's, it's difficult to imagine how Zambia resolves its debt issue. So all of these are linked together. So the equal treatment is tied to the transparency so that the IMF, the bondholders, and the Chinese can all see under each other's kimonos. That's really very important. But this key issue on getting working with the National Assembly to make the contracts public, this is what, this is what I think is the hardball what I'd like to see him do. I'd like to see one African government, actually one developing country government, to really do this and do it strong. Because I think you're right, Jude. At this point, he's got political capital. He's got a mandate. He's got the population behind him. I think from a populist point of view, this would be a very, very popular move with the Zambian public. I think he'll get the support of other African publics. He'll certainly get the support of the US and European Union. If the together with Matibini, they pass a law that says all of these contracts must be entered into the public record. And here's what will put the Chinese into a bind, because China has its non-interference doctrine. And so because this would be a national law, and, and what we know from your colleagues at CGD and the work that they did with the Kiel Institute, the Chinese have said that they will respect national laws. That's one of the things in the contracts that the research revealed. So if they pass a national law to make the contracts public, then then that will happen. In the research that Aid Data did with your CGD colleagues, they used the example of Ecuador, who did something like this. And guess what? The sun came up the next day. Absolutely. It, the world didn't come to a crashing end. I would like to see an African leader actually just say, you know what? F it. We're going for it. Let's 100, do it. 100%. And he's got the mandate right now. The worry, though, is, and I'd be, I'd be interested in your take because you understand the politics here better. I think if he waits six to 12 months, it's not going to work. Well, I mean, that, that, that's it, right? I mean, it's like, you know, so he's going to get a honeymoon period of about 100 days. If he's lucky, maybe 200 days. And then politics will, will, will happen as it is. The second thing is, eventually, he's going to run into the disappointment of the Zambian people. You know, people, <laughs> the ordinary voter places too much, expects way too much, way too early. And, and, and the reformer is, is, is never able to live up to those, to those um, uh, expectations. So I think you're right, that the, early, the quicker he does this, the better. But I think, you know, getting a law passed takes time, right? I saw that it, it, it depends on his position in parliament. It depends on what's, what's there. So I think, yes, first, he needs to come out and say, that beyond treating every creditor equally, we're actually going to take time to review the circumstances under which some of those loans were negotiated because we have laws in this country in terms of how the country acquires uh, uh, loans. That puts him in a very strong position. That puts him in a position where some of the creditors who do not want this kind of scrutiny of their loans are going to be able to say, what do you want? What, how much time do you want? Why he's doing that, that's an executive action he could take tomorrow. Then he can, on the legislative side, pass a law. Like you noted, that in all of his engagements, China has respected laws, in fact, um, that demand transparency. The reason why my colleagues at CGD, the Keele Institute, and A-Data were able to review the 100-plus contracts was because they were, they were in countries where existing laws require that these kinds of contracts be published. So I think if he acts on those two fronts, get the legislation moving through, 
but he can take an executive action that says, we're going to do a review of these contracts. It puts him in a very strong position. And, you know, one million votes more than the incumbent, you, you can't get a better mandate than that. And I think even the Chinese lenders recognize that. But this is a little bit like what Felix Chesikedi is trying to do in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where he said he's going to renegotiate some of these these loan contracts. The word on the street there is that he was doing this a little bit at the behest of the United States, and it doesn't look like that he's got the same kind of mandate that uh, Hishilemad has in Zambia to do it. The politics in the DRC are very, very different, but it is part of the same idea of of renegotiating these these contracts. Kobus, it's interesting that Jude brought up the idea of the disappointment of voters, and it reminds me of what happened in your country with Cyril Ramaphosa when he came to power into office after Zuma. The expectations were just through the roof. And then now, look, he's really a very unpopular president. Yeah, he's he's in a difficult position because because he's still dealing with that, uh, you know, trying to to clean up after all of the corruption from the Zuma era, while also facing very significant challenges of his own, not only not only domestically but also internationally. So, uh, I don't know if you saw, but but this week Gordon Brown, the, the previous UK Prime Minister, published this really amazing piece about about vaccine hoarding in the in the global north. Um, and one of the data points there was that that at some stage, um, so keep in mind that South Africa is a, is a pharmaceutical manufacturer and it has it has a vaccine production capability. And it's supposed to be rolling out uh, like large amounts of vaccines, which then, according to to the, the kind of warped and insane way that these that the vaccine distribution is set up at the moment, means that all, like a whole bunch of those vaccines, like hundreds of millions of doses, were, were supposed to go to Europe. Um, and the, he was under so much pressure that he had to literally threaten to block all vaccine exports to just get a you know kind of a, a you know a, a, a pause on that on that particular rule. So this is just one example of, of the millions of things that he's up against. So it's you know it's yeah it's very very tough on the Ramaphosa side in South Africa. Yeah. Well, let's move on now to Afghanistan. And I wrote a very provocative column today, which I'm not sure what people are going to say about it, but I I tried to start to think about the moment that we're in. And for me, listen, I'm sitting here in Saigon. So 50 years ago, helicopters were picking people up on the other side of town where I am at, and the United States was fleeing. And the images of what we saw coming out of Kabul were just unbelievable uh, in terms of the comparison to what we saw 50 years ago here in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. So now, Jude, to you, I... I wrote that this is really bad news for Africa because what I think is going to start happening in Washington, and you have a front row seat to this, is that the little attention that Africa was starting to get in forums, in think tanks like your own, I was seeing more conferences. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the, the United States ambassador to the UN, has an Africa background. Samantha Powers has an Africa background. Lots of excitement about Africa. I think that all comes crashing down now. Because investigations, recriminations, the the White House is going to be consumed with this. Congress smells blood. We have the midterm elections coming next year. And the, the little attention that Africa got 
is going to be thrown off. Now the focus is on Taiwan, on the big great power politics. China is taking full advantage of this. Putin is probably going to start playing his shenanigans. The Iranians are enjoying this. And American foreign policy now is going to make a very dramatic shift. I wrote, rest in peace, B3W. <laughs> it was good while we know you, uh, the few days that you were with us. But B3W can only work if you had that whole of government approach. You can't compete with the Chinese on something like the BRI as a side hustle. And there's just not enough bandwidth in the administration now to do something as big as B3W and to deal with the fallout from Afghanistan. And the last point that I made is that I think U.S. foreign policy in Africa is going to be far more militarized. That the idea now that Afghanistan is a nest or at least a potential nest for terrorism is going to feed fears that the Sahel, Nigeria, all of the terrorist activity that's there. We're already seeing editorials and columns in The Hill in Washington saying the Pentagon needs more money, and I think they're going to start driving policy a lot more. What's your take on some of those ideas that I put out there today? Well, so I, I think those are, like you said, is a very, very provocative piece. And, and just being here in Washington, I I, I, I wish I could. I, I, just don't, I don't share that view that, you know, everything else now, especially so far as Africa is concerned. So the reason I say this is that I was here on January 6th. And on January 6th, what we saw was something nobody could have imagined that we see here in the U.S. We have, by and large, stopped talking about January 6th. There is a committee, there's a commission, there's a, a congressional committee that has been is investigating it. It was in the news, but it's, it's out of the news. And the way Washington works, in a in a short time, we're we're this thing of of, of Afghanistan uh, um, is going to go away, and and eventually people are going to get back to their lives. Stories are going to cover Afghanistan here and there. There is a certain kind of short termism about you know the story of the day, the narrative of the day here in Washington. That means that, and, and it's very hard and sad for the Afghanistan, the, the, the Afghan people, because you know if this thing gets out of the front pages and is no longer being covered, then they, they don't get the kind of attention that is due them, and you know, and, and that's really, really unfortunate and tragic. But in terms of this dominating uh, um, American politics for longer than say you know three months, if that. I, I, I just don't see it. I think the second thing is Afghanistan was sucking a significant amount of U.S. foreign policy uh, uh, resources. And my understanding for, from the, the, the Biden people was that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was meant to, to shore up American presence elsewhere. It was meant to free up resources so that the U.S. can face turn toward uh, Asia more fully, especially China. So I think the, on that, you, 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 you're correct, but I think that was the intent. And I, I think a, a drawback to whatever attention Africa has been receiving and in terms of U.S. policy toward Africa has been the inability to confirm the Assistant Secretary for African Affairs, uh, Mary uh, Fee, Molly Fee. And this has been held up by uh, uh, um, Senator Ted Cruz. There are about 30 appointments that have been held up by Senator uh, Ted Cruz. In the last, when, when, the last time the Senate met, 
the, there was a, a valiant attempt on the part of uh, Senator Menendez and, and I think it was Senator Murphy to try to get those 30 uh, men and, and women confirmed and, and Senator uh, Cruz held it up. So I think it's been really, really difficult to do Africa policy without the point person on Africa policy in the U.S. Uh, government and at the State Department. So I think um, when they return in September and Mali Fee is, is confirmed as the assistant secretary, it will create a new a round of news about Africa. And then she's going to hit the ground running. She's going to want to do something because she's been out of the position for such a long time. She hasn't been confirmed to the position for such a long time. She feels like she's behind. So I think Africa is going to continue to get some uh, attention. And I'm not as pessimistic that you know, that whatever attention the continent was getting is going to crash because of what's happened. Yeah, like that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, um, and But if, if Africa does continue to get attention, um, will it be mostly, do you think, framed within the, a larger narrative about trying to contain or, or counter China? Or do you foresee, you know, something more independent? Like so something something that, that's closer to a, to a, a, a more kind of, uh, you know, kind of, how can I say, like a richer, a richer kind of more, like broader, more constructive U.S.-Africa relationship? Yeah, Kobas, I, you know, you've been, you know, looking at the United States. Eric is an American. He's been following U.S. politics for a long time. And I feel like there is a, there's something missing here. It's almost as if the Americans are struggling with the, the exercise of presenting a, a standalone, independent positive vision of the future. It's almost as if it's impossible for the U.S. to talk about its vision of the future without contrasting that with a perceived competitor, right? It's, it's like the U.S. needs some sort of foil. It needs a China. It needs an axis of evil. It needs an enemy of sorts to be able to... It's, it's, it's difficult for, for them to articulate any positive vision without a reference to some competitor. And, and that's really, really unfortunate. So you see that from uh, commentators here in Washington who sort of cast everything, everything through the prism of combat in China, who all of the analysis, U.S. investment, U.S. engagement is all seen as, oh, we have to prevent, you know, the, the Chinese. And it is, I think it's, it's unfortunate. So to your point, I, it's, it's almost impossible to to step away from this narrative and this framing of of of, of U.S. engagement everywhere. And and, it's, and as much as we do not want that to happen, I think a, a significant portion of American engagement in Africa is going to come out through that framing. If um, like speaking from the African side of that of that relationship, if if Africans um, could kind of restructure their relationship with the U.S., um, how do you think African leaders would? would change it like what what would they try to get from the u.s that they that they're not getting now so i th yeah I, I think uh part of that is as i noted i think for the u.s to completely see the space of hard physical infrastructure to what the chinese are doing i i i think most african countries are going to come back and say you know we want infrastructure there is not a single election you go to maybe maybe not maybe south africa maybe namibia i don't know but for the 48 countries outside of South Africa, south of the Sahara, almost every election has something to do with infrastructure. The U.S. will have to have some sort of presence in infrastructure. But I think for most African governments, they would accept what the U.S. has is core strengths in. 
And if you were to list the top 10 universities in the world, the top 20 universities in the world, most of them would be American, right? The U.S. health system is, um, you know, I mean, the U.S., what Americans get for what they pay is not enough, but the U.S. health system is one of the best in the world. So if the U.S. were investing in human capital development in Africa, providing support to African universities, providing uh, exchange programs that allow African universities to be able to send students here or for African students to study here as freely as they do now in China. Or if the U.S. doesn't want African students to come here, then invest significantly in, in the expansion of that space and research in Africa. And, and, and then also in, in the uh, uh, health care, because I, I was just talking on, one, on the, the first podcast we did, that there, the modeling now shows that in, there is a 45 to 57% chance that a, a, a pandemic, the size and scope of, of COVID will occur in the next 25 years. How does Africa prepare for that? The way you prepare for that is to be able to build your workforce and to be able to build your health system. That is somewhere the U.S. can help. So I think if Africans had an opportunity to shape that, they would ask the U.S. to, to make significant and robust investments in the area where the U.S., the areas where the U.S. has a comparative advantage, and that's in education, in health, and, and, and I guess in the creative industries. But we've been hearing about this for at least a decade that I've been following it. And just a couple of weeks ago, the Corporate Council on Africa held a big summit in Washington. They had lots of heads of state from African countries kind of dial in. They brought together American corporate leaders. And over and over again, you hear the aspirational tone of a lot of what you're saying, which is America can do so much in education and technology, in creative arts and in, in all the distance learning and all these things. Where is it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. we can do it. But at some point, you got to actually do it. I think you have a, I think you have a point that, Eric. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that we struggle with here, for those of us who, who are in Washington and who are trying to make Africa policy more, more prominent than it is, it's just, you know, whether we like it or not, the U.S. just doesn't attach that amount of importance to the continent as we would like, right? It's just, you know, it's like um, what you say, what you do is so loud, I can't hear what you say. You know, the U.S. can make speeches, uh, you know, U.S. government officials can make speeches. You can write policies about Africa and Africa is the future. We need to do this in Africa. You have to put your money where your mouth is. And if we've been talking about the same thing for same things for about a decade and see no real substantive or material change, then we only have to come to the conclusion that regardless of how we feel and what we want, U.S. foreign policy simply does not attach the importance to Africa that we would hope. You know, in, in, in Eric's rundown of, of what, what he predicted will be the impacts of the Afghanistan situation in Africa, he also mentioned that, that uh, you know, kind of he thinks or he fears that that, that African, that, that U.S. Kind of policy in Africa will become more militarized. So, I mean, U.S. policy in Africa is already quite militarized. Um, and we've seen a lot of a lot of kind of focus on Africa that, that, that I've been seeing over the last while coming out of D.C. as focused on issues like, for example, Chinese port building um, and this kind of anxiety around around Chinese expansion and and then and then with it a kind of a call for for a, for the US military to also respond um so so do you foresee a, a militarization of, of US foreign policy in Africa um and and where, where or else where where do you think it'll go 
I mean, further militarization, I don't know. I, I think, yeah, a slow creep of what is already there. I mean, it's pretty militarized, as you noted, right? And, and there's always this talk about the possibility of a Chinese naval base in the Gulf of Guinea. That the, by the way, let's be very clear. The only people talking about that is General Stephen Townsend of AFRICOM. There's, let's just be <laughs> well, super the, clear. Nobody else well, is talking the thing about is, that. And the Heritage Foundation, by the way. <laughs> well, and the thing about that is that there's not a single African government that is complaining about that, right? You don't have, uh, you know, it's not like the Nigerians are saying, oh, we don't want to. Because, you know, if there's any African government that's going to be against the, the presence of another actor, powerful actor in the Gulf of Guinea, it's going to be Nigeria. Sort of how France is Nigeria's competitor in West Africa. That Nigeria is going to see the presence of, of a Chinese naval base there as, as, in a similar way. Nigeria is not talking about that. You know, and piracy in the Gulf of Guinea has been going up. So th- this idea, you know, I, I've, and, and I don't know what, what was actually behind it, but it's almost as if, you know, any move, anything on the part of the Chinese, if you've invested $154 billion dollars, if you've given loans up to $150 billion in a space, you have an economic interest in that space. And I would imagine that you will want to protect that interest. So if China were not China, if it were a European power that had invested $150 billion in Africa, that wouldn't be an issue, right? That they're looking to have a base or a relationship. And so I don't know if there's going to be a significant ramp up in the militarization of U.S. policy in Africa. I think it's going to continue along the lines that it's been and it's pretty militarized at, at the moment. Yeah, I just see Al-Qaeda maybe making a reappearance and that will then scare everybody back to where we were in 2002 and 2003 after 9-11. And it's just the momentum builds in Washington to spend money on guns. And we just love that more than anything <laughs> else. So that's my thought. Also, just to be very clear, there is nothing in the public record in Chinese or in English that indicates that the Chinese are looking at building a base on the Atlantic coast of Africa. This has only been something that's put forward by the Pentagon and AFRICOM and General Stephen Townsend. So we've talked to a number of scholars who read the Chinese literature. They haven't found anything. It doesn't make sense as part of China's broader geopolitical objectives. They're focusing most of their resources here in Southeast Asia and in the South China Sea. That's where their main theater of competition with the United States is. But who knows? But at this point, I just think it's important to put that out onto the record. Last story I want to get before we got to let you go. And this is one that I've been looking forward to speaking with you about because it's right up your alley in your old job as public works minister in Liberia. The loans are being called in from the Chinese. And this has taken people by surprise because Nowhere else in the continent are they calling in the loans the way they are in Kenya for the Standard Gauge Railway. And these are sizable loans that they're calling in. A billion dollars is now expected to be repaid in this fiscal year. So from about July this year to July of next year in Kenya. Uh, and then also this AfriStar deal. Now, this AfriStar deal, last year, Kenya Railways defaulted on this $380 million payment. This was very notable because... It's for this payment on these on this railway that was all that talk about the debt trap diplomacy issue with the port of Mombasa, that if there's a default on the standard gauge railway, the Chinese will seize the port of Mombasa. Of course, that was never the case, as Professor Deborah Braudigam at the China Africa Research Initiative must be blue in the face telling everybody about 
The contract states that it was to garnish some of the revenue from the port of Mombasa, not the port itself. Very important distinction here. But nothing happened. So they defaulted on that payment. $380 million is a lot of money. And nothing really happened. Then all of a sudden, last week, we get word that Afristar says, uh-uh-uh, we're not going to hand over the, uh, the, the the standard gauge railway until you settle this debt. So two big debt payments now going from the Kenyan taxpayers back to China. A lot of people see that it's in poor taste given the fact that the Kenyan economy is facing some serious headwinds. What do you make of what's happening in Kenya with the standard gauge railway and these debt repayments? Yeah, it, this is, a, for me, I'm baffled like everyone else, right? So there is no country in Africa that has a longer relationship with the Chinese than the Zambians. And we saw that China played hardball with them around the debt service issue, and, and which led to what we saw in Zambia with the bondholders. And then after, after Zambia, I mean, you know, we keep talking about African debt to China, but we're talking about, we've, you've said this on the show, you've written about this, we're talking about about seven countries. Kenya is one of those countries, right? There are a few countries where China has had more extensive presence than in Kenya. And so for countries that do not have a relationship with China, you're looking at Zambia, you're looking at Kenya and thinking to yourself, how the Chinese treat them on the debt issue is going to be indicative of what we can expect from the Chinese. And it's unclear to me what kind of message China is trying to send. That's one. The second thing is Kenya is about to go into the exact same thing that we're seeing happening in Zambia right now where you're going to have an election and a new government is going to come to power. There are still questions. There, there, there are Kenyan activists who are in court today to try to get the terms of the SGR reviewed to the public. We don't know what they are. Uh, in 2019, the president was asked, uh, the president, president Kenyatta was asked during a, uh, a, press, a press conference, and he initially said that he was going to reveal the terms. Supposedly, in conversation with the Chinese, that he walked, he had to walk that back. I am not sure that going into an election where a new president comes in who wasn't part of the negotiations on those, who has the, the I'm not saying renegotiate, but to review the terms under which they were done. I, I, I'm not sure if that's the position that the, the, the Chinese want to be in. And even if the Kenyans were to default, what would you do? How would you do what you do? So I, I can understand China wanted to send the message that they, they're going to be repaid for these projects, you know, and you have to remember that the, the assessment of a country's ability to repay these loans were done by both the Chinese and the, the countries that are taking the loan. So the idea that the country is incapable of paying the loan and there needs to be punitive measures against them, the, the, both sides are responsible for this. The Kenyan side is just as responsible for taking on this debt. And the problem is this debt overhang, right? It's where the debt burden has become so large that the country is actually incapable of taking new debt, doing new projects, or doing anything else. And that is where Kenya is headed. So I can't imagine that the Chinese want to be the, the central story for why Kenya defaults, the central story for why Kenya cannot do anything else. And I, I, I would hope that what we've seen in the past, that when a, when a country faces this, there would be some sort of renegotiation. But China's refusal to allow deferral is, is, is just as baffling to me as it is to others who are watching it because it's unclear what kind of message China is trying to send to its African partners. 
Yeah, I, I agree. It's really interesting. I mean, with it also comes the the increasing kind of narrative that the, that the standard gauge railway is a complete failure, um, an economic failure as well. You know, which which seems to also undercut the wider Chinese story in in the region. Um, did, like, what do you think the future of the actual railway network, particularly the cross railway network, as it was planned originally, is is at the moment? At this point, I mean, if just looking at what's happening in Nigeria, so one of the things that I don't know, again, you know, part of my, the expertise that I've tried to build over the last couple of years is what is the thinking in African capitals? And even in instances where I can't speak with people who are there, I try to put myself in their shoes to say, what would we do in a situation like this? And so my, the expertise I've tried to, to build is Africa's response to the presence and policies of external actors. So I don't know what the Chinese are, 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 are thinking. But I think going forward, if we go back to the 2018 FOCAC, you know, see, uh, the Chinese president then said that it was the end of vanity projects. And maybe his African counterparts didn't take it seriously, right? But I think China is going to change the criteria of the projects it, 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 it funds. I, I don't think China is going to completely stop lending in Africa. You have to remember, if China were to stop lending in Africa completely, what exactly was the benefit of Africa's relationship with China? The, the, the relationship, the partnership between Africa and, 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 and China is, is largely government to government. There are no secondary ones. There are no real people-to-people connections. And so because of that, it is in the interest of China itself to continue to, especially at a time when China is going to be uh, um, isolated, there is a growing and hardening sentiment, negative sentiment toward China across the developed world. And I think that's only going to grow. China is going to need its African partners for legitimacy for its actions at home and in its, in its neighborhood, but also in terms of its influence overseas. So to antagonize its African partners at this time, I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think China is going to continue to invest, continue to lend, but the criteria is going to become, the criteria are going to become slightly more stringent. Yeah, what we've seen this year in terms of the types of loans that the Exim Bank has put forward, I think is a preview of what we're going to see ahead. $90 million for the Senegal data center that Huawei built. Uh, about $100 million, I think it was, for the Huawei network in Burkina Faso, $400 million for the power substation in Kinshasa. These are much smaller, more tactical, targeted types of loans that are really benefiting Chinese industry more as well, and not the big mega multi-billion dollar projects, which is why the folks in Nigeria are not getting their phone calls answered in Beijing anymore, because $14 billion for railways on the eastern eastern coast, eastern railway and the coastal railway, plus the AKK pipeline, that's the kind of stuff that I think is going to go away. But I, I, th- I agree with you. Small tactical loans are going to be the future I of agree. it. Yeah, I that's agree. That's where it is. That's right. That's right. And then those that are those that are tied to industries where there's a proven cash flow, right? Exactly. So if it's a, a data center, is is telecoms? Those, those are those are pretty profitable. And day one, they start generating revenue. That's so correct. So it's not like a railway that has to build up for 10 years to pay it back. So, That's right. Hey, very quickly before we get back, you've launched a new podcast series. Tell us about it. So the the, the name was supposed to be CCLM, the Trans-Africa Podcast, but CCLM is Cape to Cairo, Lagos to Mombasa. 
And the idea was, you know, this is this dream that most Africans have of their homeland, the continent that, you know, yeah, Cecil Rhodes first came up with the Cape to Cairo. But this has always been this idea that you would be able to connect, you know, the two and the, the four uh, edges, right, north to south, east to west. And so this is this idea. But it... I found that a significant portion of the work that I did was, you know, about what was China doing in Africa? What was Europe doing in Africa? What was the United States doing in Africa? And it was centering the external actors more than it was Africa. And the goal of this is to be able to center Africa. All the research that we considered, and we'll try to do each episode that focuses on a research paper and then the practice of what the research is about on the continent and try to get as many African voices as possible. So African businesses that are trying to meet both you know, governance and market failures, African academics who are doing research, African governments that are doing projects, African firms that are doing projects. So those are the things that we're trying to do. So uh, the, we started off by you know, uh, the pandemic episode, but not just thinking about the pandemic, but thinking about the next 20 years, how does Africa become like India and be able to build its own manufacturing, vaccine manufacturing capacity? Then uh, this week, I think, we have an episode with Abe Selassie. He has the IMF Africa Department. And he and his colleagues have written a paper on what African governments can do to attract private financing. This is important as we've seen reductions in Chinese lending, reduction in multilateral lending. We have him along with my good friend Charlie Robertson from Renaissance Capital. And then we have a, a piece on, on agriculture. You know, this is, there's always been this potential that agriculture could actually transform Africa. It's just never happened. Africa has still not seen the Green Revolution. Why? What can we do to change that? How can agriculture play a role in the recovery after? So this is what uh, Lagos to Mombasa is about. It's about centering Africa. It's about centering Africa in terms of what Africa needs to do, what Africa is doing to be able to get to that place um, so that we become what Vietnam is today. Fantastic. And where can people find the podcast? The podcast is listed everywhere you can find podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, okay. uh, everywhere you can find podcasts. It's listed as CGD podcast. So when you click on the CGD podcast, you will see it underneath there. That, that's where it is. So please look for it and uh, follow me on Twitter too. And give comments back to Jude. So I'm going to put links to the podcast. Uh, and Jude, if people want to follow you on Twitter, you have an excellent Twitter feed. Where can they find you? Yeah, it's uh, my, my Twitter is at... Jude underscore more and Jude is G Y U D E. And you see that I am uh, 100% pro Africa in everything that I do and tweet. And so please uh, interact with me on Twitter. Fantastic. So links to the the show and also Jude's Twitter account will be in the show notes. Jude Moore, thank you so much for taking the time. You've really, again, shaken up how I see these issues, and I really appreciate all, all the time you take with us today. And uh, we're looking forward to having you back again very soon. And good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's always a pleasure talking to you and Cobas. You do really, really good work. Thank you for all you do. Cobas, it's always refreshing slash humbling slash inspiring to have Jude on the show because he really challenges a lot of my thinking on these issues. And I think I've been, you know, I'm going to kind of step back and, you, you know, I'm going to take his critiques to heart that I think I've been a little bit too negative towards the United States in some of my writing this past week. So I'll, I'll kind of chalk that up a little bit. 
I think it's born from a frustration that I that the United States is capable of doing so much more, and yet it just doesn't seem to follow through. And, and that might be the big part of the problem for the Americans is that they just don't have a story about what they're trying to do. The Chinese do. And it's a very compelling story, and it's one that resonates with a lot of people in Africa and in the developing world about building capacity through infrastructure development and then through on to economic development and betterment of your life, just like we did here in China and in Southeast Asia, you too can have that same kind of success. The American narrative is is a jumbled mess, and I don't think, well, this part I know for sure, it has not been helped at all by what happened in Kabul this week. You know, the, the U.S.'s strength and its weakness is to a certain extent the same thing, right, kind of, which is that it is very open, very transparent, very, you know, democratic, and, and therefore is beholden to democratic cycles. You know, so so there is, because of that, there's, there's inherently kind of less stability in the way that the U.S. interacts with the world because things change, you know, the wind changes every four years in, in, in Washington. Um, and that is both a strength and a, and a challenge. Um, I think that, you know, that... that for that reason, you know, it is really important to to project a, a strong U.S. story. But the problem is, I think, it's not really the only the need to project a story. I think the need is the the need to feel the story oneself. Um, and I think, you know, the U.S. is, yeah, and also just just to be able to come up for a story for the future, like a narrative of the future that that includes oneself, right? Kind of, I think I think that maybe one one of the troubles for the U.S. in the world is that there isn't really a unified view of what what a good future looks like, even within the U.S. Um, you know, there's there's such kind of such a kind of a stark kind of gap, you know, with like a kind of a cultural gap within the U.S. Um, and and such kind of stark different ideas about about what even a successful mitigation of COVID-19 would look like. So it's it's difficult to kind of get everyone in the US on the same page in terms of, of what a good future for the world will look like. And for that reason, is there not surprising that there isn't very a unified story kind of going out into the world? So two quick plugs before we go. Number one, let me just once again emphasize Jude's podcast. Links are in the show notes. He's done podcasts in the past. He did one with our friend Aubrey Ruby at the Atlantic Council. It was amazing. I have a feeling that this series, I haven't actually listened to to too much of it yet, so he's only done a couple episodes, but I'm so looking forward to the 12-part series on these. Again, they really, just like you heard in this conversation today, he really has a way of looking at these issues in a way that goes, you, makes you go, ah, wow, okay, hmm, didn't think of it that way. That's what Jude can do. That's what his podcast can do. So really just want to support him and what he's doing uh, over at CGD. Also, all throughout the show today, you heard that we were referencing the columns and the articles and the news that we're putting out at the China Africa Project. Jude is a subscriber to the China Africa Project. He receives our daily updates and goes onto our website. We'd love for you to also join our growing audience of readers in Washington and around the world. Uh, our content is published every day at 6 a.m. Washington time. So if you're in the capital, you'll get everything right before you head on to work. You can, well, Still, I think most people are working at home or a lot of people are working at home. But I would say if you're on the red line going in, it's a great read. Go ahead and check it out at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions start at $75 a year for students and teachers and $149 for everybody else. We've got monthly plans as well. Cobus is writing uh, every week. 
Our Africa editor, Cliff Mboya, is writing every week. I'm writing columns every week. You're getting a lot of voices coming in from our China editors. And one of the things that we're trying to do with this this newsletter and also with the content on the website is capture all of the different conversations from Washington, from Beijing, from Nairobi, from all over to be able to put in to give you a good perspective on what's happening every day in China, Africa, China, Middle East, and more broadly, China, Global South relations. So please do check it out. You get 30 days for free. If you have any questions whatsoever, just give me an email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com, or you can hit up Cobus at Cobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. That'll do it for this edition of the show. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Cobus at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com.